and I'm driving my sister, you know, to the, to the airport. And unfortunately we never made it. Okay. And, um, and I wow. got in a really bad car accident and she died. And my aunt was also in the car, my, my uh, dad's sister. And that was the first thing I'm 21 years old, my first day as an ensign in the Navy. And here I am lying in Walter Reed hospital. Fortunately, I had cuts and bruise, uh, bruises, a little concussion, but I survived. Four days later, I'm at a funeral, my sister and my aunts and saying, how did I get here? I mean, why did this happen to me? And uh, that was a tough time, but you sit down there, Doug, and you have to move forward. I had a ship I had to go to. I had my career to step forward in and my sister's loss, my aunt's loss, gave me the inspiration to then get back on track and do something special with my life. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's episode is extremely special because I have a guy on the show who's been like a second father to me for, for nearly a decade. And you know that if you've been following me for some time, you understand that mentors have been so meaningful in my own transformation and that has trickled down into being able to help so many people. And some of my mentors have made big names for themselves. And then there are a few uh, that you may not have heard of that are more unsung heroes. And, you know, one who many of you have come to know is my cellmate. And another one is going to be today's guest, Larry Indiviglia. And Larry has been a mentor and coach of mine as I said, for nearly a decade and been instrumental in my success and transformation. And frankly, this podcast wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for him. And he and I actually met through our mutual friend, Todd Durkin, at his mentorship and have developed a transformative professional and personal relationship since. Um, you know, Larry is a retired naval, naval officer. He served 26 years and has been a fitness professional for 32 years. Gosh, it's almost as old as I am. He's been in the fitness business. And you're really going to appreciate hearing about his life experience and how he turned so many negative situations into positives. Like just one of the situations you're going to hear about that he experienced, one of the setbacks could cripple somebody for the rest of their life. And there was a handful of them that he went through and managed to get himself out and become a better version of himself through each and every one. Uh, his Yoda-like wisdom coupled with his grit is remarkable and has been able to touch the lives of so many people. And his unmatched ability to empathize and inspire others comes from his own personal journey of overcoming massive adversity. He lost his sister to a car accident that he was the one driving the car. And he lost his brother to suicide. He's broken his neck. He survived colon cancer and lost the love of his life dying on a deathbed next to him. But with all that being said, he's been able to bounce back and been able to continue to give to so many people, write an amazing book, which you're going to hear all about and help people change the world. And he's going to help you realize that it's okay for someone not to think about others and focus on themselves first. And not only is this going to save you from all of the burden that was thrown at you, but can also be the reason for you to do great things. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome not only a mentor, a dear friend, but somebody who has had significant impact in my own life, Larry Indiviglia to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Larry, man, thank you so much for coming on. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Doug, it is awesome. I've been looking forward to this podcast for a long time. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, and just like I said in the intro, for those listening, this episode's special for me in so many ways. Larry has been a mentor of mine, a coach, almost like a second father figure for almost a decade. And I met Larry through, through Todd Durkin. And, I, and for those of you who know me well, and Todd's been on the podcast, I went to Todd's uh, mentorship. And through the mentorship, we met different people. And one of the guys I connected with was 
his right-hand man, Larry, and he has been instrumental in my success personally, professionally, and spiritually. And this podcast wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for Larry and Todd, for that matter. And Todd's success wouldn't happen without Larry, and neither would mine. So I wanted to get Larry on here to, to share his story and his incredible journey of overcoming massive adversity. I mean, listen, like if you were to tell me that a guy would lose his sister to a car accident, that he was the one driving the car in, um, lose his brother to suicide, break his neck, survive colon cancer, and lose the love of his life um, dying on a deathbed next to him, and still be able to give back and write an amazing book, book, which we'll get into, and still be able to coach his tail off to help people change the world. Most people will be like, you got to be kidding me. Just one of those things could set somebody back for the rest of their lives, given all the trauma, the pain, and everything else. And Larry has taken each one of those moments and created something special and massive mission-driven purpose out of it. So Larry, thank you once again. But before we get into the weeds on the book and coaching and, you know, how you've turned that into a positive, I want to paint a picture for the audience. So take us back. I know you went to the Naval Academy and that's really where like your first major form of adversity happened for you. So, you know, take us back to the Naval Academy. What inspired you to, to go there and then what happened from there? Yeah, Doug. And, and number one, it's, it's interesting how in life, as we move forward, as the student becomes the teacher now, the teacher <laughs> becomes the student. So Doug, uh, very, very, very happy for all your success. And I just can't tell you how rewarding it feels. I just want to say that at the outset of the podcast is absolutely awesome. So going back, uh, 17 years old, came out of high school. I was pretty much a straight guy. I was directed to go to the Naval Academy because my dad, my late dad, who died at 99 years old, had a friend who was a captain in the Navy, and we used to visit him every summer. Anyway, um, I got, he was an Academy graduate, a World War II hero. And his name was Ken Schacht. And I got a, uh, at eight years old, nine years old, I got an exposure to the academy. So much so, it impressed me that I wanted to go there. Okay, so early on, that was a goal of mine. And I was lucky. I worked hard. Uh, I kept out of trouble in high school. I was an athlete. Um, I was kind of a straight guy, but I was directed. I was very focused. I got into the academy uh, uh, at 17. Uh, this was back in 1973. We're talking a long time ago, Doug. And um, but it was a great school because it challenged me. At that time, it was all men. So all the guys were capable guys. And I got a chance to meet guys from every state in the union. I was mm. from New York, okay? It was very provincial. You know, when I went down there, I made friends from Washington, Florida, across the country, which was a great, great thing. And uh, the leadership there and the, the uh, challenging environment does, pre uh, pre I don't wanna say prepare you, but it does for adversity. And here I was after four years there, I work real hard, I graduate. Graduation week, very, very special time for all the families there, big event. And I'm driving my sister, you know, to the, to the airport. And unfortunately we never made it, okay? And, um, and I wow. got in a really bad car accident. And she died, and my aunt was also in the car, my, my uh, dad's sister. And that was the first thing. I'm 21 years old, my first day as an ensign in the Navy. And here I am lying in Walter Reed Hospital. Fortunately, I had cuts and bruise, uh, bruises, a little concussion, but I survived. Four days later, I'm at a funeral, my sister and my aunts and saying, how did I get here? I mean, why did this happen to me? And uh, that was a tough time, but you sit down there, Doug, and you have to move forward. I had a ship I had to go to. I had my career to step forward in. And my sister's loss, my aunt's loss, gave me the inspiration to then get back on track and do something special with my life. Wow, I mean, that's, there's so much to unpack there just with what you just shared, you know, between, I mean, first the inspiration to go to the Naval Academy because of your dad, but more importantly, everything that happened after graduation. So my condolences for everything that you went through at such a young age. I mean, I know it's, it's hard to lose somebody at any time of your life, let alone when you're 21 years old, you're just starting to really mature as an adult. Yeah. You're now in this already transition of going into the Naval Academy to now going off on a ship to go into the Navy formally. And here you are, you're just having to bury your sister because of the car you were driving. So 
what was going through your mind at that time? And how did you, like you said, you just had to get through it, but there had to have been something that clicked, whether it was routines, you had habits, maybe it was like a mindset thing. What got you, what got you through that time that you didn't like go off the deep end? Well, you know, my faith, number one, uh, I'm a Christian and I believe that God has a plan. Christ has a plan for us. And I said, boy, this is a hard one to swallow. Mm. But my dad told me after we buried my sister, he said, Larry, go and live your life. He says, God has saved you for a reason. You don't have to prove anything. Just go out there and be you and live your life. He says, you don't have to do anything uh, special for Barbara. That was my older sister. She was 28 who died and Teresa, my aunt. You don't have to do anything special. Just go out there. However, the best thing for me, Doug, was to get out of that environment and to go out to sea. I didn't have time to process it like really super intently. I was able to put it behind me and then move forward because I had a job to do. That was the best thing for me, Doug, at that time. If I had had to stay home and wallow around or if I got seriously injured, I think that would have been a lot tougher, Doug, just, you know, talking honestly here about it. I went out there, and in four years on that ship, I won two medals, and I said to myself, and I didn't necessarily do it for them. I just did what I felt I had to do, and um, I got out to San Diego. It was a new environment. Here I am all the way overseas in Australia and New Zealand. There was a lot of excitement, a lot of adventure, and I didn't have time to wallow in it. I know it sounds selfish, but that really helped me and my faith. Yeah, I think faith, obviously, you and I share very similar beliefs on that and just knowing that things happen for us and not to us. And as much as it sucks when we're going through that moment, that time of darkness, we have no other choice really but to kind of think positively, keep putting our one foot in front of the other and just keeping our head held high no matter what. Just keep standing tall because, you know, we all wish we could bring back that loved one or change that dark situation that we're going through, but we can't. We can't. Only thing we can do is change how we respond. And so many times we go through these incredibly unfortunate circumstances and it's the way that we respond that, you know, ends up throwing us down a deeper rabbit hole for periods of our life instead of being like, okay, I'm going to mourn. I'm going to go through this time of grieving, but what are the things I can control right now in a healthy way that can improve my mood? Who can I surround myself with? Um, You know, should I be exercising? You know, how can I do that? what's my nutrition like you know am i staying away from substances because all these things we have control over and what ends up happening in my experience and just talking to a lot of other people is we go through something like that and then they turn to instant gratification to feel better drugs alcohol sex money gambling and it makes that situation even worse and because they're actually not even taking the time to sit within those feelings and grieve it prolongs the shame it prolongs the pain, it prolongs the ability to get through it. And I think for you, it was like a perfect storm, right? She passes, you have to go on to the Navy, you're around a bunch of other men that I'm sure helped support you, right? They're like, they holy crap, they right? right? And then you're working out, right? Um, yeah. You're improving yourself, you're staying goal oriented, and you're focusing on Larry, right? Because so many times when we go through tough situations, we become codependent and we think about, oh, what could I have done differently? Could I have saved her? What could I have changed? And we lose sight of working on ourselves, which at the end of the day is what we really need to do is heal ourselves when something like that happens. The one question I wanted to ask is what was the response from your family? Like, did you catch any like, you know, flack from them or anything? You know, Doug, that's a great question. And, you know, I I think there's, um, you know, sometimes you see movies in Hollywood about, you know, somebody who survives a loss and then you, you have survivor guilt. And then also your family could resent you. Yeah. I never felt that from mom or dad or from my siblings. And I know they had to be around it back in New York. Um, you know, when my sister did pass away, I was divorced from that. Okay. That immediate. And I think they were actually challenged more than I was, but I never got the in- indication from them or the feeling from my younger sister, my older brother, or my mom or dad that, um, that, it was my fault or they made me feel bad about it. Uh, if they did feel that, Doug, it was never stated. And I never felt that in how they behaved and acted towards me after that. But that's a great question. 
Yeah, I think sometimes it's it's natural. I mean, I think a lot of times it's natural for something like that to happen and feel all kinds of guilt, right? I mean, you look at like, wow, why did I have to be the one to survive and they didn't? Like, how, how come this happened to them and not me? You know, could I have made a different turn? Could I have handled this differently? And we feel this sense of guilt, right, which we'll get into because I think, yeah. I think from knowing you, as long as I've known you, I believe that your passion for loving others and serving so much, being so authentic comes from the fact, and there's some guilt in there of not being able to save your sister, your brother, which we'll get into. Yeah. And yeah. there's that pain that's become purpose. So, all right. So you're thankfully able to move through this stage of grief in your life in a healthy way after, you know, having to bury your sister. And I know like from just knowing your story, one of your main goals was to be able to get up and talk at her funeral and, and everything like that, which yeah, kudos yeah. to you for that. I mean, it takes a lot of courage and bravery. So you graduate the Naval Academy, you go on in the Navy. How long did you serve in the Navy for? And how did you get started into fitness? Because I know like the way we yeah. knew each other is through fitness and you end up moving you know, to San Diego, you stay there, you open a fitness center in Coronado. So walk the audience through like, what was the transition like from being in the Navy? How long were you there? And then what got you into fitness? Yeah, a great question, Doug, too. I always wanted to get into the fitness world. I used to um, uh, follow bodybuilding when I was in high school, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Frank Zane, all those guys. Oh, they were awesome. And, and, and my training, I got into training when I was 10 years old. Al Order, who was the Olympic all-time discus, four-time gold medal winner, was a Long Island guy. And I went to one of his seminars, and I asked my mom and dad to buy my first weight set when I was 10. <laughs> right. That, that's how I got into strength training. But to, to get back, let's fast forward. Um, you know, once, once – um, I got to the point and I decided to leave the Navy. It was, a, it was a six year commitment. So I was four years at sea. I came to San Diego, I stayed there. There was a couple of different things that got me to make the decision to leave the Navy and resign my commission after six years. Uh, but I did that, okay. I stayed in the Navy Reserve though uh, for an additional 20 years. So I did stay in the reserves. The res reserves in those days was not like it is now post 9-11. Mm. You did one weekend a month, and then you did two and a half uh, weeks of training during the summer. So I was able to do that for 20 years. But in any case, let's go back into that moment. I always wanted to get into fitness, Doug. I had to get out to California. So when I selected my ship when I graduated in Annapolis, the academy, I wanted a, a West Coast ship. I wanted San Diego because California was the mecca of bodybuilding and fitness. So when I left the Navy, I knew I was going to be physically and geographically where I needed to be. Uh, I spent a few years uh, getting my certifications. Uh, I got my master's in corporate fitness administration. I thought I was going to be a wellness director at a major corporation. That didn't happen. So I worked for a small defense contractor as a systems analyst for three years or so, and then decided to get into the personal training business. And in those days, late, late, late 80s, early 90s, you finally can make a living as a personal trainer. That's how I got into the fitness business, but it was intentional and it was something I wanted uh, to do. So um, I aligned with various people. Um, and then eventually I met Todd in 1997, uh, started following him. And then uh, when he created the Todd Durkin Mastermind, that's how I aligned with him and got into the coaching. But that was 20 years into my process. Always wanted to work in a small studio, Personal training was a passion. I had also gotten into endurance uh, competition and stuff, but I was always a fitness guy, like my own personal habits. And I, I here, here's the thing, Doug, my avocation became my vocation and my profession. And that's kind of how I walked it down and, and it was, I was able to make it happen. Yeah, it's, it's really special when your, your passion becomes your career, right? And something that you yeah. long to do to help other people improve themselves, to help other people change their lives, become something that you actually can wake up and be excited about every single day because you know that you're, you're, you're on a mission, you know that you're creating change, you know that you know, somebody's going to feel better as a, as a result of you, know, you coaching them, you training them, you being there just in that atmosphere. So you mentioned, you know, meeting Todd, which is, you know, Todd's been a mentor of mine as well for a long time. That's how you and I initially met. But yeah. there's a story behind meeting Todd. And I remember you telling me that there was a certain, you just knew in your gut that this guy was special. So talk about when you, when you, how you met Todd and then sure. how you got involved, you know, in, in, in working for him, because there's a story behind that too. 
Yeah, there is. And, and Doug, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the plans sometimes God has for your life. He, he brings people into your life for a reason. We met for a reason. That's why we're sitting here today. Mm. And we're both sitting here today, maybe because of Todd Durkin. Well, not maybe, we are. Right. Uh, 1997, 98, uh, I was working at a very, very a large apartment complex that had a huge gym. It had a track. It had a huge aerobic room. The San Diego Charger cheerleaders used to work out there. It was like atypical of like a, a small, a smallish gym that an apartment place may have. Anyway, I had a lot of clients there, thriving business. It was one of the sites I worked at. And this, um, so this guy, the Sandy haired guy would come in with this big blue bag. And I would see him doing different things. He never went into the traditional gym. He didn't use traditional weights or weight machines. He was like doing stuff in the aerobic room, these different drills with cones, his stretching <laughs> routines. He had like a track athlete he was working with. It was really different. Then he'd be out on the tennis courts doing these drills, agility, mobility stuff. I'm going, who is this guy? So the uh, fitness center there at the apartment house had a manager. Guy's name was Brad Platt, awesome guy. He was a former quarterback, San Diego State. Went over to Brad and I go, who's the Sandy haired guy who comes in? He goes, Larry, he goes, Todd Durkin. So I go, I never heard of him. He goes, he goes, he's, he played NFL Europe, Larry. He messed his back up with a back injury. He goes to San Diego State. He's a great guy. Introduce yourself to him. So I did. I, I, I took, uh, Todd wasn't there that often. He only had a couple clients. And I asked Todd, I went up to him and he goes, oh, nice to meet you, Larry. Todd at the time was still battling his back injury. He wasn't fully healed yet. Okay, but he was there doing the work he can do. He was he was warm, he was approachable, but he wasn't the as energetic as we know him. Okay. And then what happened is that planted the seed, and I would see him every now and then. And then I started following him. He'd be in the newspapers, he would be doing a presentation, and then three years later, he opens up a Fitness Quest 10 studio in Scripps Ranch, which in those days was unheard of. He put massage therapy and personal training under the same roof. Nobody had ever done that. I noticed about Todd, he was an in innovator, okay? I said, this guy's different. He's an innovator. I'm going to start following him, even though I was a lot older than he was. I had been practicing probably 10 years prior to him getting into the industry. But it doesn't matter, Doug. You, the greatness in us is the greatness you see in others. You could always learn from somebody older or younger. I saw that in Todd, and that's how the relationship blossomed. Yeah, and the rest is history. I mean, I think you two together, you know, through the last 20 plus years, right, have yeah. had a, made a massive impact in the world together. I mean, I think, like we said, we would know each other, you wouldn't be where you are today. And Todd would not be where he is today without you. You are like, the man behind the scenes, the unsung hero in his life. And really, like, as much as you, you know, now have been that unsung hero and been there for Todd to help him meeting him saved your life too, in a way. So yeah. there was a moment yeah. where you were, I mean, as we all do, right? So for those who are listening, who are in the health and fitness community, or maybe you're in a job that requires you to work long hours, you know what burnout's like, and you know that sometimes you just have nothing in the tank and you're coming home after work and you're just passing out on the couch, you're getting up and like rolling out of bed, having a drink a pot or two of coffee just to get moving. Yeah. And it's unsustainable. And if you don't take care of it and manage it, it can lead you down a really dark path. And for you, you had a near life ending, a near life ending neck injury, right? So talk yeah. about what, what happened, you yeah. know, maybe some lessons you learned from that injury, like where you were and then how you pivoted out of that to get into coaching for Todd. Yeah. And there were many lessons, Doug, and I'll keep the, keep on point to the most important ones. One burnout in a profession is when you don't want to go to work. You just, you don't see, you can't do it anymore. Exhaustion is different. Exhaustion mm. is like you're manic. You want to keep going. In my case, I was working a small gym in Coronado, a very good business, an excellent business, 50, 55 sessions a week. Okay. Just really delivering, serving group classes, one-on-one. -on -one, and I was the main guy there. Okay. I loved it. However, it comes a time when you start working too much you get exhausted, you start slipping up. And what happened was, the very, very short story, I stayed late one night, very late, did an extra session, and then the next morning, I would open up the club, 4.45 every morning, I scheduled a 4 a.m. session, okay? This is what could happen. I had to sleep upstairs that night. I told my ex-wife at the time, 
uh, I'm sleeping upstairs because I got to leave super early. I did during the night. I felt sick to my stomach and I had to go downstairs to use the restroom, frankly. That's all I remember. I fainted at the top of the stairwell, went flat down, uh, hit my head and uh, blew out C6, C7 in my neck. Next thing I know, my son finds me bleeding at the bottom of the staircase. Thank God my, ex my ex-wife was a nurse. She did all the right things. My life as a trainer and as a fitness professional was on pause for six months. Wow. Okay, period. Fortunately, I had a disability policy. I had a little savings. My ex-wife was a nurse. We were able to get by. Now, how old were you at this time? I was uh, 52 years old. Wow. Okay, so now, you're even more at risk from a fall like that because as you age, right, we become you know, weaker and everything absolutely. else. So yeah, your increase for that becoming more serious, your risk for that becoming more serious was much more, you know, it, high, it, it right? Was, I was lucky. I could have been in a wheelchair. I could have been dead. Uh, I got the great care. So that was a lesson too. You get great care. I was lucky right away. Mm. Um, and I had met Todd, as you had mentioned, I had been in his mastermind program for one year and he had always taught us, take care of yourself, take care of yourself. I didn't listen to him. Okay. I didn't listen to that. Most, most of us have a hard time doing that too. So it's yeah. all good. So I kept working like a, like a maniac and, and not having a harmonious, more balanced life. And then that was a wake up call. So then what happened was I couldn't ever get back to my training. Like I had done it. I physically couldn't do it. Hmm. Uh, I had been uh, with Todd for one year in the mastermind. The program was growing and he said, Larry, you're at the 20 year mark of your career. I think you would be a great coach in the mastermind program. And he extended to me in 2009, uh, one of the coaching positions. Uh, he, Troy Fontana was our first coach and then I was the second. And he gave me a group of 15 professionals to work with. And that's how I got started coaching other fit pros in, in the mastermind under his model. And you know, Doug, I'm not sure exactly where I would have gone but in a lot of ways, Todd really saved my life in a sense because he gave me now energy and a place to go to still use my gifts and talents to help and serve people. That's amazing, man. And you know, God does have a plan, right? Because if you hadn't met Todd, right, who knows what would have happened? Who knows what you would have had to do? Maybe you had to force yourself to get back into to training full time after the six months. Maybe yeah. you would have had to go back, get out of the fitness industry completely and go and work in a nine to five job at a desk. Um, you could have, uh, you know, had to rely on the government for assistance. We don't know what could have happened as a result of not meeting Todd, right? And I'm extremely blessed, as I've said, to have met you. And I really believe that your passion for wanting to coach and change other people's lives and, and, and you know, give your wisdom, your encouragement and all these like Yoda-like um, sayings you'll say to us through yeah. the years comes from your own pain in your life from not being able to save your two siblings. And when I say two, we talked about your sister, but I know another prominent moment in your life that was inc incredibly devastating was when you lost your brother. So talk a bit about when that was, what happened, and then how the hell you got through that time in your life after you know having to bury your sister, you know, early on. Well, you know, uh, Doug, it's, you know, Joe was three years older than me. He got into drugs in high school. Um, he, he, he was always into controlled substances, alcohol, uh, prescription drugs, and then also street drugs. He was a functional person. He was a, a, a hair cutter for years mm -hmm. at a top studio in New York for years. Was a, you know, sometimes you hear the, the term in AA, a functional alcoholic. Uh, he was a functional guy um, for many, many years. However, at age 53, he was emotionally, physically, spiritually, and mentally shot. He had had it, and he decided that he had to take his life. And during that time, I would see maybe some cries for help. I was busy. I was married. I had a fitness business. I had two children. You try to be sympathetic. You try to show compassion. He is my older brother. Um, he always used to say, I love smoking and drinking. I'll never stop. But there was something underneath I felt. I probably could have done, especially being in the fitness business, to help him. Uh, I was not able to do that for whatever reasons. So uh, Joe committed suicide, um, took his own life, OD'd, a combination of, of alcohol and, and drugs. 
And, um, you know, it was, it was a shocking thing. That was two years before I broke my neck, frankly. Okay. Wow. And I, I went to therapy after that to, to go to counseling, to talk to somebody about this, uh, because it was a profound, uh, it was a profound event in my life when you lose somebody like that, even though he brought things on himself. But Doug, when you lose somebody like that, suicide in your family, it, 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 it's a very, very tough thing we all do look at could I have done more could I have done more mm. for Joe and Joe was a great guy he would take the shirt off his back for anybody but he had some demons and um, you know he wasn't able to get help or maybe he wasn't willing to get help and uh, you know he did not so it was a very catastrophic time in my life when that happened and you know we do look inward could I have done more yeah man I mean Gosh, I mean, just as we said earlier, just losing just one sibling um, at a young age is incredibly challenging. And then when you lose another, how old was he? You said 50? Joe was 53. 53. And, uh, he started on a bad road when he was about yeah. 15. Yeah. yeah, so he was still young. It's not like he died, um, you know, oh. from, from natural causes or anything. He died because he was unhappy with himself and unhappy with his life. And so, sure, you know, it's easy for – for you to fall back and be like, man, could I have been there for him more? Could I have, you know, talked to him more? What could I have done to help him change or whatever? But really, you know, at the end of the day, we can't, we can't change that. We, we can sit in that guilt. We can sit in that sorrow for a period of time, which I think is very normal because we're humans and we have feelings, we have emotions, right? But going forward, we need to be able to accept that it did happen as unfortunate as it was and know that whoever it is that passed would not want to see us continue to suffer for the rest of our lives. They would want to see us thrive. They would want to see us use that moment um, to grow and get better and maybe help inspire other people around them to, to improve their mental health or to beat addiction and yeah. stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I want to, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask like a lot of people who are listening to this, they go through tough times. They might lose a loved one. They have a loved one who's battling addiction. They've lost their job. They're financially strained. Their health has taken a turn for the worse. You're at this moment in your life where you just lose your brother to suicide and you're going through all this guilt mentally. I'm sure you're incredibly overwhelmed emotionally. What advice do you have for someone who's going through something like that, that can get them through where they're coming out, you know, a better version of themselves on the other side. Like what kind of things would you recommend they do if there were two or three things? Yeah. Very insightful question, Doug. Number one is accept the realization that you can't save someone. You kind of just suggested that you could serve them. You could help them. We cannot save someone. They have to be able to save themselves uh, and through their faith or, or whatever higher power, if they have one, to, to translate and connect with, okay? So serve, help, cannot save anybody. They have to save themselves, that will help you. The other thing is you will get clarity when adversity strikes. When Joe committed suicide, when my sister was killed in the accident, you will get clarity on something or someone that perhaps you didn't before. There's always a silver lining, right? Correct. Tap into that energy, follow it, all that feeling and go with that energy. It could be something that you now go write a book. You go now and enter school to go to graduate school. You go and create a foundation. It could be something that does it. So remember that energy that you're feeling and go with that energy. It's not just emotion. It could be something that you're inspired. Hey, you know what? This person just died. I have to live in today. I'm not waiting. I am going for it. And also, if you have faith, go back to your faith and, and, um, and thank God um, for the lesson he has given you in this process and that you're still here and able to continue your journey. It sounds selfish, I know, but that's something, three things I did to help me. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, man. What can come out of adversity if we're able to look at it with the silver lining approach and say, you know what, like I'm incredibly devastated right now. I'm miserable, 
But I know if I keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing the things I know I'm supposed to do on a daily basis, something good will come out of it. And you'll look back and you'll be like, wow, like because of that experience, I am where I am today. Like because of my personal incarceration and fitness saving my life in jail, which I never thought would lead to where I am today. But looking back, it was the biggest, my biggest blessing became, came out of my greatest setback at the time. And for you though, it's interesting. You keep having setback after setback after setback. But what I love about you, Larry, and I always have is your immense um, intentionality with care, with uh, giving and serving and coaching people and really taking um, inventory of how you can really change somebody's life of the people that you're coaching. So like, what do you really think though? I mean, I wanted to ask you this, you know, earlier, like losing your brother, losing your sister, did that really play a major role in like the passion and attention to detail you take with the people you coach in the mastermind? I think there is a connection, Doug, and I think it's very insightful that when you have a deep personal loss, especially immediate family, it doesn't get uh, much more challenging than that. Immediate family, losing members, uh, certainly a child, and I hope I don't ever have to experience that, okay? So that immediate family loss, that is your blood. That is your DNA, okay? And, and when you lose people on that level, that, that close to you, um, you know, it, it does, it, it does um, affect you. And it also gives you an appreciation for life more and how precious and fragile it is. And then also, it gives you the ability to look at people differently. At least it did for me, Doug. It's like, okay, what's this person feeling? Is he or she struggling, perhaps like Joe was? Um, is, she, is he or she so vibrant in their life right now that if they wait and not act on something, they miss an opportunity? Um, my, my older sister, I think, had a couple opportunities she didn't seize on, and at 28, her life ended. I'm not going to say why, you know, that was God's plan. So I start looking at people more closely, and then what can I do to help them move their journey along to get, help them to get to where they want to go, and also compassionately look deeper into their personality so I can yeah. coach them from a deeper perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, because most of us, we're trying to get better and improve our lives in such a way that we don't end up in a super dark place. We don't end up broke. We don't end up addicted to drugs or alcohol. We don't end up having marital problems. We don't end up like really losing the passion for what we do. And you've experienced all of that. So you've been able to take some of those deep, dark lessons that came out of that and create this, you know, we like to say Yoda like wisdom that you're able to pass on and pay it forward to the people you coach. And what I really like have grown to love about you, Larry, is you're a sponge for knowledge. You're a sponge for wisdom. You're always learning. And I think coaching enough entrepreneurs, coaching enough people that are doing some amazing things in the world has also inspired you to kind of go out on your own and do some things for yourself, right? And you and I have been close for a long time, right? And I remember, um, you know, a few months earlier this year, we were on the phone and you're like, Hey, I met this woman I really like, and it's about time I take care of Larry for once. You're mm -hmm. like, you know, I've been so into taking care of my family, taking care of people in the mastermind, helping out with Todd that I really need to put forth some effort into my own life and fill my cup. And I really love her. And, and I remember as we started talking, cause you and I talk very frequently, you're like, you know, yeah. she's going she's gonna to die in a few months. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm staying with her. I'm like, what? And I, and I was not that I was like questioning you. I was like, real. I was, cause you'd only known each other a few months. So I was like intrigued. I was like, you know, what, what's the story behind it? And you're like, you know what? Like I'm in love with her. She's like, she's my girl. She's the love of my life. And you stayed with her until she died on her deathbed, man. And I know for you, it inspired you so much. And you thought that it was such an important and pivotal moment in your life that you wrote a book about it, which yeah. Yeah. I, am so blown away by inspired and I'm always in strong support of anybody who takes a really dark moment and take and turns into something beautiful, let alone writes a book. So talk about how you met, um, Gail, yeah. right. And then 
what inspired you along the journey? Like, what was that journey like of really like walking her to her death, right? And then writing a book about it. Well, Doug, uh, again, by faith, God brings people into your, into your inner circle or connections for a reason. Every connection is for a reason. Some lasts a long time. You know, for us, it's been seven, eight, nine, well, 10, 11 years now. Um, I met Gail online. Um, I wanted to meet somebody this year. I had met a couple of, of relationships online. Didn't work out for whatever. New decade, new year. And early in the year, January 6th, I met Gail online. I was immediately captivated by her spirit. She's a beautiful lady. Uh, she was very transparent and told me immediately that she was battling stage four cancer and had been breast cancer for four years. Uh, that had spread and she had been through various treatments, but she was still putting herself out there. I was captivated by her courage that she was embracing life and love, um, even at age 68. And with this, uh, this adversity in her life, battling stage four cancer, that she could still be a woman and she was made the choice to live her life, continue to live. And Doug, we hit it off uh, very early and uh, we, we got along in a lot of different ways. Uh, she was a great spirit. I learned a lot from her. I think she learned a lot from me. And against all odds, we had a, a relationship based on um, admiration, compassion, joy, and just a lot of other things until she got sick again and the cancer came back and moved to her brain. Um, there's lessons you always learn along this road. And I do think that um, being able to live and love with loss is possible and it is worthwhile rather than not to have pursued it at all. And I looked at this lady as a very, very unique person that I not only was gonna learn from, but also I was gonna help get her through the last stage of her life. And that was kind of the backdrop to how it happened and maybe why it happened. Man, that's really heartfelt, man. And it's, it's inspiring that you would almost, again, like kind of sacrifice your own life and everything you were, you had going on with your, on your plate at that time, because you met somebody that you truly aligned with that God put in your life. And you're like, you know what, like, there's a lot of people that would have left in that moment and be like, you know what, like, I've only known you a few months, like, what's the point of staying in it? But you were like, you know what, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here with you until you die. I made a commitment to you. I love you. It's incredible, man. And just from somebody who is your friend and, you know, been somebody you've coached through the years, you continue to inspire me with your, your integrity and your, just your humility and your level of care for other human beings. So what was like, how did, again, how did you, battle what you were going how did you manage all these emotions in your mind you're in you're in love with this woman right yeah yeah you knew that she was quote unquote the one at the time for you then you get you the the cancer had subsided then it comes back and now you're like oh man you know it's because you're a very intuitive guy you know in your gut that it's probably going to end soon what was going through your mind and how did you manage that like influx of emotions to kind of keep yourself stable I, I, um, my, my faith, number one, again, relying on that, there's always a purpose and, and there's a plan and there, and there was, and there was for Gail. Um, we had 10 weeks of joy and adventure, which is, which is uh, documented and shared in the book. Okay. There's a lot of good times. And then when the cancer came back, the reality was I knew Gail 126 days and 11 minutes, hence the title of the book. Out of the 126 days, Doug, and you point to this, 51 of those days were in a traditional hospital for seven days, and then hospice, an inpatient hospice for 44. Uh, COVID came down, shut everything down. And I, I prayed every night, give me the strength to be able to visit Gail at hospice every night and not get COVID because I have to see her to the finish line as far as I was supposed to go with her, okay? So I had in my mind that I was gonna be there for her until the end. 
and that kept me going. I, I really wasn't thinking about COVID. I was thinking, how could I make her last phase of her life better? What could I do to bring joy into a very tough experience in an inpatient hospice, four-bed inpatient hospice? What could I rely on? What could I use? How can I best approach this situation so that she goes out with dignity on her own terms, as tough as it is? And you know, Doug, when you're going through something like this, you don't really know what you're doing. You know, dying is a tough thing. And I relied on uh, my faith, friends coming in to help me. I relied on listening to Gail. And after she had lost her ability to speak and to see because it moved to her brain, it forced me again to use the power of touch and to get involved in this situation where you become a caregiver, but at the same time, I knew there was a powerful reason I was in that room. I went back to my car accident. God had saved me to be at this time, point in time, to help Gail. Um, I didn't die when I broke my neck. I was in that room for a reason. So I was able to reflect back. I know this sounds deep. And at the same time, what can I do to not only help Gail, but also learn from the experience. Because Doug, when you do this, you gain things. It's not just giving. You are receiving things from that person who's dying. Yeah, and on that note, what were some of the lessons you learned from her along the way, like walking her through this journey? Um, never give up. Mm. Be positive, because the keys to life are humor, joy, adventure, positivity. Living in the today, the yesterday's behind you, we can't do anything about it. The tomorrows will never know. So living in the today, singing, um, sitting with your truth. Sometimes we say, trust your gut, go back to your core values and, in, and stay within your truth, your inner truth, so that that gets you to the end of your life. You always have that. Gail was able to die in dignity and in strength, thank God, and not in physical pain because of the pain management in hospice was great. So also pay attention to the people that'll come into your lives, Doug, to help you and also to ask for help. I document that in the book, who came into my life to help me during this rough time. You were one of them. Um, and pay attention to that. Also, Love and living are so, so precious in life. Don't ever take them for granted. Don't ever give up on them. And don't ever not take the opportunity to embrace both of them. Mm. Such beautiful lessons, man, that came out of a really dark storm. You know, I'm almost wondering if God put Gail in your life in the manner in which he did, that she came into because there was some sort of insecurity or healing that needed to be to heal from everything that happened with your sister and her, your sister dying on your watch in a complete accident that maybe he put Gail in your life to know that, okay, like I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to stay here and you're going to walk this woman to her death in a healthy and safe way. And it's going to bring you some peace in your life that you are a good person, that that guilt needs to be let go of that shame of everything that happened when you were younger and now we're going to take this blessing um, that you've been, I mean, the, the adversity that you've been given and turn into an amazing blessing with this book because you were a good servant and you stayed with her until death do us part, right? Do you think that had yeah. anything to do with it? Yeah, it did. I think two things, Doug. I think, uh, you know, my situation with Barbara who died young and she was a, a unique spirit, a very vibrant woman. And, and she was a deep person as, as Gail was. And I, I do believe that Gail helped open my heart. Look, I was married for 25 years and it ended in divorce. I don't think, Doug, I would be able to have handled the relationship with, with Gail to the extent that I did. I'm, I'm in my mid sixties. Look, we're, we're actively aging seniors. Gail was 68, I'm 64, 65. I don't know if I would have been able to do that, to have that relationship and commitment with that challenge of cancer in my 30s, 40s, or even 50s. 
I was able to do it in my 60s, okay, because I had a bigger picture. Gail was able to break my heart open, not break my heart, but break it open so that I can experience really real love again. Or maybe, maybe perhaps for the first time, and that's an all deference too to my marriage. But um, that she did for me. And I do believe that going back to losing Barbara and thinking about, hey, could, I, could that have been prevented? Or maybe there was some guilt there. I do believe it was all somehow connected, but it took years for me to realize that, if you see what I'm saying. I had to be yeah. in my 60s to look back and know the meaning of that. And that's probably why we're talking about it today. Yeah. That's amazing, man. And so it's incredible that your, your wisdom and everything that you're kind of able to get from these dark situations, there's, there's always silver lining as you're sharing. And there's always like this, in, this immense amount of clarity, it seems you have from every situation that you went through in your life. And I think so many times in, that we are, we're always looking for clarity in that moment of darkness. We're always looking for clarity in that moment of the uncertainties. We're always looking for that clarity in the, in the moment of adversity. And it, we're not going to get that clarity sometimes. It's not until we get out of the weeds that we'll be able to look back and be like, wow, like from a logistical perspective, this is what happened. This is what I learned. This is how I can grow as a human to help other people. And I think so many times we're looking in blessings right now because we want that instant gratification. Like, what can I learn? How am I going to get better? How am I going to change? And the truth of the matter is you don't in that moment. The only thing you can do is keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing the things that you know will help you grow. And then you'll get out of the weeds, right? We always get out of the weeds eventually. And then we can come back to that situation um, with logic and then really, you know, look at like from a different perspective, like what we learned from it. So, you know, you wrote the book, the book is called 126 days, 11 minutes, our love story. Right. And we, many of us lose people, right. To overdose, to, you know, death of certain ways. Um, we go through traumatic experiences, but not everybody writes a book. So what, what, what was that? Mo what was that moment for you when you were like, you know what, this story is a book and I need to write it. I need to tell it to the world. Yeah, uh, Doug, here's, here's some of the thought process and, and really the feelings involved. One, I never set out early on when I first met Gail to write a book. I'll be very clear about that. Gail did share that she wanted to write a, a book about her life. She was not able to do that. That might have been sitting in the back of my mind, mm. but I had never set out to write a book. I do journal every day. I keep very close notes. When I was in hospice, this is super important. 44 days. Because of COVID, you could only go to your loved one's room. You couldn't go to the common areas. You couldn't talk to the other families. I had to be in that room. I took more notes because of being in that space more than I probably would have. Observations, things that happened. After Gail passed So, so you, were you were journaling during this entire time? I was. Wow. And I normally okay. do journal every day. Right, right, right. You, you know, You're right, right. But I, I, was, I was forced to be able to do that. And then with COVID, because of the restrictions on our lifestyle and our businesses, I had more time to focus on thought and writing in my journal, being honest. And I knew that after Gail passed, I would do her a disservice if I didn't share the lessons and gifts that she bestowed upon me and share them with the world because it was an extraordinary experience and not only showing how somebody could embrace life and love at the end, and maybe for the Gales and Larrys out there, and there's many of them, don't be afraid to reach out to somebody, to commit to somebody, to love somebody, even though they're struggling. Society says don't, don't bother. And so the process was, I have to get the story when it's fresh in my mind, raw, and I have to do it now. If I had waited, Doug, took me seven weeks to write the book, I, I could tell you, honestly, I could not write the book starting right now today. I had to do it then. Yeah, I mean, so many people just don't think they have the ability with that, within them to write a book, to write a story, but we all have that unique gift inside of us, right? All it just yeah. takes is to start. And I, I, from my experience, whenever you go through something uh, that's traumatic or something that sets you back and you write about it, there's a sense of healing that comes with it. Did you get that? Did you get like a sense of therapeutic Ab relief after you've done it? Absolutely. Doug, ab absolutely. There was three things. One, I just lost 
a loving person. I had to grieve. So the writing process was kind of a, kind of a catharsis. Secondly is I wanted to share the lessons, like I just stated, about what I learned from Gail was very, very powerful. She was a very, very great spirit, and there was lessons I learned from the experience. And then, you know, COVID gave me the ability to write every night. I, your lifestyle was constricted, and it gave me the ability to focus on writing, get it out as quick as I could get it out on paper and, and, and make it happen. And I was able to do that in seven weeks. But th those were the three things, the three factors, yeah. And because you had the audacity and courage to make a hard pivot during the pandemic and get to writing is why this book is going to be a success. It's why you were able to write the book. Because I think so many times when we hit a point like the pandemic or any other time, like mountain that we have to climb, we pause and we blame other people and we play the victim. We don't take action. We focus on things we can't control. We get all negative. And as a result, we don't move in that right direction up that mountain where like, frankly, most people, no matter what, they want to get up that mountain. But the problem yeah. is yeah. what we want and what we do just don't align. What we want is to get up that mountain, to overcome these adversities, to feel better, to be healthier, to develop deeper relationships. But we, what we don't do is the very thing that we know we should be doing, right? And for you, you took massive action. You journaled. You kept your health in order. You surrounded yourself with positive people. You got to, to writing this book. And now it gave you an opportunity to turn this pain into purpose and also help heal that wound of, of trauma that you just went through earlier this year, right? And I think what most people will relate to in this book is not the title. The title is very catchy. And I think obviously people are going to want to read it because of it, but it's the journey throughout the process that people will relate to. No matter if you just lost yeah. a loved one, everybody can relate to going through some, some form of um, intense tragedy in their life where they're forced to deal with it the best they can. Everybody is going through something right now that's stressful. Everybody is going through uncertainty and unexpected, unexpected outcomes right now. Yeah. Right. And you yeah. went through all that. You journaled about it. You, you were kind of very intentional about the way you documented your love story. So what are some lessons you think that people can get out of the book? So let's say somebody's listening now and like, you know what, like, I haven't lost a loved one. I've never had to take anyone to death, but I still want to read the book. What are the top two or three nuggets you think the everyday person can get out of it? Top two or three is um, it's never too late to love somebody, even mm. if you're actively aging years, or if you're younger, if somebody's struggling, it's never too late. Okay. And, and that's, that, that's a, a big thing. Um, the other thing is joy adventure, love, you can do it and really make an impact in a person's life, even in their last segment of life, Doug. Um, that, that can happen. Thirdly is the end of life process and the dying process is something that you might not be familiar with. And it is an interesting thing how our society either looks at it, doesn't look like, look, look at it or avoid it. I go into some detail about what I was going through and how I was being challenged. Certainly how Gail was being challenged. Ultimately, she was losing her life. But that how I was being challenged, how the caregiver is challenged, the beautiful people that care for the dying, what they do, and how to live with dignity till the end is, is so important and how a person can still do that. So it's that kind of integration between caregiver, person who's dying, the other caregivers and that whole circle of people that move this person to their day of transition. You will get a lot of perspective, Doug, in that, in that particular phase of life. I do. I, do, I, I will say that for sure. Yeah, because, you know, almost at every personal development event, there's that, always that exercise. It's like, you know, we asked people who were on their deathbed, like the three things they wish they would have done differently, right? And it's yeah. typically like spent more time with loved ones, taking more risk, worried less, take talk, you know, taking more time to think, that sort of thing, right? So I'm sure you share some very insightful perspectives 
in the yeah. book on that sort of thing. And, you know, what's really cool also, among other things about the book is like every part, every facet of the book, there's a story behind it, right? There's a story yeah. of how Gail always wanted to write a book about her life. So you kind of, she kind of passed the torch on to you, right? Um, there's the, right. And then one of the last things she said to you before she died was promise me you'll love again. And now, yeah. now yeah. what's yeah. interesting is, you know, there's other people in your life that you've met, um, that are helping you with this book. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and then the, the thirdly, the one that sticks out is the book cover that you have on the book that you've chosen for a very special reason. Talk about the meaning behind the book cover, why you chose that specifically and how it kind of ties into the story. Doug, this is a impactful thing about this book. You, you kind of, you're, you're digging deep to some really, really gems of, of what's important. The book cover, I had a picture. Gail was a professional photographer for 33 years in Los mm -hmm. Angeles and very, very talented. And she had nature photographs and she also was an Argentinian tango dancer for 12 years and a very good one. I never danced tango with her. However, she did a lot of pictures of Argentine tango dancers. And she had one called Malanga uh, number one that I had in her hospice room. It was framed. And it was a dancing picture of couples dancing, tango. And that was in that room for 44 days. Um, when I had to decide on the cover, I wanted to use one of Gail's professional photo uh, photos. I didn't know which one. I had had one of her nature photos. I was going to get to the point where I was going to have an artist do a cover. You know, I, I didn't have clarity. And um, our friend, Don Celepino, and her, um, her boyfriend, Jim Hahn, who's an artist, Jim read the book and he said, Larry, you refer to this tango picture. Please send me a copy of it. I sent him the copy of it and he said, day later, he says, there's your cover. Gail was an artist. Use one of her pictures. Use that tango. That was part of her life. That helped. She, she maintained her tango dancing, Doug, in four and a half years of fighting cancer. She always still danced. So that kept her alive and she had a really close tie to the tango community. That became the cover of the book. And Gail is a part of this book, not only her story, but the actual cover, which is kind of cool. It's beautiful, man. You continue to inspire me. And it's like, there's all, it's just funny. Like every time you unveil something about the book, there's this, this, this immense story behind it. that yeah. kind of, I think touches my soul. I'm sure is going to touch so many people. So around it because like, I think when you do things for the right reasons and you are aligned, I think things just tend to flow, which is why, you know, you and I've had the conversation. I think the book is going to do very well just because you did it for the right reasons. You did it out of love and really just to, to pay it forward and kind of fulfill your promise you made to, to Gail to love again, not just love another woman, but love yourself, love yourself to the point where you're able to finally take care of Larry and build that brand that we all know is like hidden inside of you to be able to blossom into like the next you know phase of your life. You helped walk Gail into the final chapter of her life. And I think her subconsciously, whether you, you think about it, whether you uh, agree with me or not, is helping you walk you into the next chapter of your life and building your brand with this book. So, where can people find the book? I mean, is it Amazon? Is it on? Yeah, Barnes? right now, Doug, great question. You can go to amazon.com and, and it's available now. It officially launches in a few days. It's available online, Amazon, Kindle version, and also the paperback version. Um, also, Doug, there will be an audio version that comes out mid-November. In fact, we're finishing the recording of it. So the audio version will be also available on Audible mid-November, but right now it is available via Amazon. That is the major uh, channel. We're working on some other channels, but that's where you can get the book. And that's, uh, you know, that could be easily done, you know, for people. So amazon.com, uh, 126 days, 11 minutes, our love story, or just search by myself, Larry and Viglia, and uh, it'll, it'll come up. That's awesome, man. And I got to say, you know, you, people watch The Notebook. They watch uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Dear John. I'd have to say they got to add uh, 120, 126 days, 11 minutes, our love story up there with that because it's beautiful, man. And you continue to, to show me just 
the power of being selfless and a servant of God and just being on a mission to help change the world and how much that can really have a massive impact, not just on yourself, but with those around you, you continue to inspire, inspire me every day uh, on that front, man, with your courage and bravery to continue to put yourself out there and grow, even as you are like, you're in your, what you're in your mid sixties, right? And yeah, you're I'm like, 65, Doug. I'm, and, I'm on uh, Medicare now. <laughs> <laughs> and you're continuing to write books. You're continuing to say, you know what, like what's next for Larry? It'd be really yeah. easy for you to kind of just put everything on the shelf, hang it up and say, you know what, I'm 65, I'm done. But you're like, no, what? I'm just beginning. And now you're going to create this um, incredible book out of it and just see where it takes you. So I wanted to really thank you for coming on. You know, you know, you're like a father to me and have had a massive um impact on my journey on all fronts. And so to talk to you on here was a dream come true. And for those listening, I mean, there's so many facets of Larry's story that can be relatable no matter where you are. And what I want you to do is if something really touched your heart, whether it was the book, whether it was losing his brother to suicide, the car accident with his sister, the Naval Academy, fitness, the burnout, screenshot this episode, screenshot that you're listening to this, tag me, and tag Larry. I'm going to put all of Larry's contact information, um, except his phone number, of course, um, in the show notes for people to be people to be able to find out where you can follow him. Because we're all going through stuff right now, whether it's COVID, whether it's relationship stuff, whether it's addiction, whether it's mental health, whether it's our personal health, we're all going through something. So reach out to Larry and tag myself too with your biggest takeaway from the episode by his book, his book is incredible as he walks you through hell. You know, I think it's, it's, it's easy, you know, for me to be like, wow, that's inspirational. Uh, that's incredible. But for him, I'm sure it was extremely hard to sit there and watch somebody that you love that you know was going to die and not ever be able to see them again. Um, and so I really would appreciate it if you guys check this book out. And then again, reach out to us, let you, let us know what you thought of the episode. And if it really touched your soul, we, we appreciate hearing feedback. So if you want to leave us a five-star review, that would be incredible. Um, but once again, I really, really, really thank you um, for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage, because it's a special one with my man, Larry Indiviglia. And um, we will see you next time. Thank you, Doug.